Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items rented heirs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, let's start off with a little obituary here from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, December 1st, 2023. Howard J. Pearlstein, May 14, 1949 to November 27, 2023, author unknown. Howard J. Pearlstein, 74, passed away peacefully in Los Angeles after a brief illness. A son of Leo and Helen Pearlstein, Howard was a Los Angeles native and received his B.A. in public relations from USC. He was fortunate to spend 45 years working with his father, Leo, and brother, Frank, in the family business, Lee and Associates Public Relations and Advertising, recognized as one of the leading independent food promotion agencies in the country. Howard's clients included Panda Express, Mrs. Cubinson's, PepsiCo, and Frito-Lay. In addition to his passion for and success in the public relations industry, with hundreds of high-profile media placements, Howard loved music, playing trumpet in a family band with his father and brothers and writing songs. An engaging storyteller, he also enjoyed traveling, poker, and photography. Horse racing was a passion. Howard owned several racehorses and was thrilled to watch his horses run and win. Howard is survived by his wife, Helene, his father, Leo, his brothers, David and Frank, and their wives, Karen and Kathy, and nieces, Jennifer and Jackie. Services will take place on Sunday, December 3rd at 10 a.m. at Hollywood Forever Beth Olam Cemetery in Hollywood. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the American Heart Association. That was Harold J. Pearlstein, May 14, 1949 to November 27, 2023, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 1st, 2023. All right, and here is one more. From the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, November 30th, 2023, Henry A. Kissinger, 1923-2023, to towering figure in U.S. foreign policy. Architect of Cold War strategy was as controversial as influential by Norman Kempster. Henry A. Kissinger, the architect of U.S. foreign policy and the apex of the Cold War and a towering intellectual force in world affairs for more than a half a century, has died in his Connecticut home. He was 100. As National Security Advisor and Secretary of State in the administrations of Richard N. Nixon and Gerald R. Ford, Kissinger dominated international relations from 1969 to 1977 with charisma, intellect, and a wry cynicism. Although his tenure in the Nixon and Ford administrations marked his only senior government positions, he had an impact on policy both before and after his years in office. From 1956, when he was study director of an influential panel on nuclear policy until well into the 21st century, Kissinger advised presidents of both parties. Any student of American foreign policy will need to be familiar with his philosophy of realism, sent Peter Rodman, a Pentagon official, scholar, and aide to Kissinger. He suggests there is a diplomatic approach to everything. In November of 1968, when Kissinger, when, when Nixon picked Kissinger as his national security advisor, the two men hardly knew each other, and what they knew they did not much like. Nixon loathed the Eastern establishment typified by Harvard men and protégés of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, 
Kissinger's first patron. The president-elect also exhibited anti-Semitism, sometimes in Kissinger's presence, and Kissinger had made no secret of his doubts about Nixon's intellect. But the two men shared the goal of concentrating the government's foreign policy in foreign policy power in the White House. They undercut the authority of Secretary of State William P. Rogers and opposed heavy-handed supervision on the Pentagon, CIA, and other foreign policy centers. In 1973, Kissinger replaced Rogers as Secretary of State and became the only person to hold the post of National Security Advisor and head of the State Department simultaneously. Kissinger established the standard by which all subsequent foreign policy advisors have been judged. Ford, Nixon's successor, eventually stripped Kissinger of the NSA role, saying years later that it was a conflict of interest for him to hold both positions. As the architect of U.S. foreign policy, Kissinger had a crowded agenda, much of it consumed by the Vietnam War. He and North Vietnamese negotiator Le Duc Tho were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for hammering out a plan intended to end the war, but the agreement announced in January 1973 failed to stop the fighting, and the war dragged on for more than two years until Saigon finally fell. Kissinger accepted the honor, although he did not attend the ceremony, blaming the pressure of official duties. The refused prize explaining that uh, refused the prize, explaining that he considered the negotiations to have been a failure. In addition to Vietnam, Kissinger played a key role in reopening U.S. relations with China after more than 20 years of isolation. He was the author of a policy of detente toward the Soviet Union that eased Cold War tensions and opened the way for historic nuclear arms controls agreements. And he generated a new approach to the Middle East that cast the United States as a broker between Arabs and Israelis, a role that subsequent administrations continue to play while expanding Washington's military assistance to Israel. Kissinger established a delicate triangular diplomacy among the world's three most dangerous nuclear for forces, the United States, the Soviet Union, and China. For Washington, it was a balancing act with the communist powers in which, as Kissinger said later, we attempted to be closer to each of them than they were to each other. To some, the three-way relationship was a bargain with the devil, in fact, two devils. At the time, China and the Soviet Union had appalling human rights records and neither had much in common with the United States. Human rights issues in China and the Soviet Union were not ignored, but they were shoved aside because of the strategic imperatives that Helmut Sonnenfeld, a top aide to Kissinger at the State Department and National Security Council, and like Kissinger, a Jewish refugee from Nazi Germany. Kissinger once told an interviewer that the debate over the morality of U.S. foreign policy, secret bombings, wiretaps, covert intelligence operations, and the like, had paralyzed the nation and kept it from pursuing the most moral goal of all, the pursuit of stability and peace. His working philosophy was built around three points, realism, linkage, and shuttle diplomacy. Realism was a 20th century refinement of 19th century balance of power politics in which nations pursue specific nation, national interests regardless of abstract philosophical concerns peacefully, if possible, or by the use of force, if necessary. Linkage was his way of joining seemingly unrelated issues, such as making economic relations with Moscow contingent on the Soviet Union using its influence on North Vietnam 
for policy concessions in the Vietnam War. And shuttle diplomacy was Kissinger's signature technique of, stim of simulating negotiations between parties that refused to talk to each other, typically Israel and its neighboring Arab states, by meeting separately with each party and conveying those positions of one to the other after adding his own spin. Realism and linkage had historical roots that far predated Kissinger. But shuttle diplomacy seemed to be his innovation, starting in early 1974 when he flew back and forth between Israel and Egypt to mediate a settlement of the October 1973 Arab-Israeli War. Perhaps because his realism seemed to operate beyond the bounds of conventional morality and cut across philosophical distinctions, <clears throat> Kissinger was always a controversial figure, praised for towering pragmatic accomplishments, but condemned by ideologues on both the right and left. His most outspoken critics saw Kissinger as ruthless and accused him of war crimes, primarily for the expansion of the Vietnam conflict into Cambodia and the support Washington gave to brutal right-wing dictatorships in Chile and Argentina. Kissinger's first diplomatic coup was to end the frosty isolation between the United States and China. In July 1971, he eluded reporters and flew secretly to Beijing, where he quickly established a rapport with President with Premier Zhao Enlai. There, Kissinger and Zhao plotted Nixon's groundbreaking trip to China, which took place in February of 1972, a visit that Nixon called a week that changed the world. At the time, China was still in the throes of the violent cultural revolution, cut off from the United States and with strained relations with most of the world. Its economy was isolated from international markets consisting of little more than agriculture and handicrafts. Its weapons sector was generations behind the West and the Soviet Union. After Nixon's trip and Kissinger's follow-up diplomacy, China's isolation gradually receded, ultimately allowing the country to evolve into a significant world economic and political powerhouse. Shortly after Nixon's trip to Beijing, Kissinger moved ahead on the state on the second track of his diplomatic vision, arranging a U.S.-Soviet summit that took place in May of 1972. The talks produced a number of agreements on scientific and cultural exchanges and eventually led to the first strategy arms limit limitation treaty. A few weeks after the summit, the Soviets began to pressure North Vietnam to be more flexible in its negotiations with the United States, a classic example of Kissinger's linkage strategy. Later in 1972, Kissinger sought to capitalize on the Soviet contacts with North Vietnam by opening talks with Hanoi's negotiator, To, in a suburban Paris mansion. Although the meetings were supposed to be secret, Kissinger made no effort to hide the talks. Photographers clicked away from surrounding rooftops and reporters tracked leaks from inside the hall. In October, less than a month before the 1972 election that gave uh, Nixon a second term, Kissinger and Cho concluded a tentative peace package. Kissinger dramatically announced that peace is at hand. When the North refused to accept the accord, Kissinger advised Nixon to increase the pressure on North Vietnam to sign the pact. The president ordered intensive bombing of North Vietnam in December 1972. A month later, the ceasefire was signed and Nixon proclaimed that peace with honor had been achieved. In the ensuing weeks, U.S. prisoners of war were released and the last American combat troops were sent home. 
but Kissinger failed to achieve stability in the region. When U.S. diplomats and other Americans clamoring aboard helicopters on the embassy roof, Saigon fell to the North Vietnamese Army in the early hours of April 30, 1975. Declassified documents made public by the University of Virginia Miller Center of Public Affairs in 2004 indicated that Nixon and Kissinger had extremely modest goals for Vietnam, hoping only for a decent interval between the withdrawal of U.S. troops and the ultimate victory of North Vietnamese forces. Still, for the rest of his life, Kissinger argued that his diplomatic work was sound that, and that a stable peace would have endured if not for the aggressions or of the North Vietnamese and a failure of will of the part of the United States. In the early 1970s, Kissinger, at the behest of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi of Iran, secretly encouraged Kurdish separatists in Iraq to rebel against the government of Saddam Hussein, providing the insurgents with $16 million in military aid according to a congressional investigation. But in 1975, after the Shah and Hussein patched up a border dispute, Kissinger abruptly terminated U.S. support for the Kurds, an action the House Intelligence Committee called a sellout. Justifying his decision, Kissinger told a committee staff member covert action should not be confused with missionary work. The remark was pure Kissinger, witty, brash, egotistical, and cynical, and constituted a nine-word summary of his version of realism. The often controversial nature of Kissinger's approach was also on display in U.S. relations with right-wing dictatorships in Argentina and Chile in the 1970s. In Chile, the United States was clearly implicated in a military coup that deposed Salvador Allende, an avowed Marxist who was elected president of that country in September of 1970. Henry Alfred Kissinger, then known as Heinz, was born May 27, 1923 in Firth, Germany, the son of a religiously orthodox middle-class Jewish family. He spent the first 15 years of his life in Firth, a grimy industrial city in Bavaria, facing the increasing anti-Semitism of the Nazi party before his family fled to London, then the U.S., in 1938. That was Henry A. Kissinger, 1923-2023. Towering Figure in U.S. Foreign Policy by Norman Kempster from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, November 30, 2023. Kempster is a former Times staff writer. All right, let's uh, move. Let's uh, read a, an opinion article here with regards to the recently departed Henry Kissinger from the opinion section, the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 1st, 2023, saying goodbye to Kissinger, the criminal, the forgotten dead of the nation's that real politic devastated are still crying out for justice by Ariel Dorfman. It is oddly appropriate that Henry Kissinger should have died in the year that commemorates the 50th anniversary of the 1973 military coup in Chile, the cataclysmic overthrow of its democratically elected president, Salvador Allende, and the end of a fleeting attempt to create a socialist society without resorting to violence, a first in the history of revolutions. As National Security Advisor to President Nixon, Nixon uh, Kissinger ferociously opposed Allende and destabilized the Chilean government by every means possible. He considered that, were Chile's peaceful movement for social and economic justice to succeed, American hedge money would suffer. He feared that the example might spread and affect the world balance of power. 
as Kissinger not only fostered the ousting of a democratically elected foreign leader, he subsequently supported the murderous regime of General Augusto Pinochet, even as the dictatorship was massively violating the human rights of Chile's citizens most egregiously in the cruel and terrifying practice of disappearing opponents. It is these desaparecidos whom I think about now, as Kissinger is feted by a shameless bipartisan Washington elite. All these years after the coup in Chile, 1,162 men and women are still unaccounted for. The contrast is telling and significant. Kissinger will have a memorable, almost regal funeral, while the victims of his policies have yet to find a small place on earth where they can be buried. If my first thoughts when I heard the, view, the news about Kissinger's death were filled with memories of my missing Chilean compatriots, several of them had been, clear, had been dear friends, soon enough a flood of other casualties came to mind. The Count was dead, wounded, and disappeared in Vietnam and Cambodia, in East Timor and Cyprus, Uruguay, and Argentina. The Kurds Kissinger betrayed. The apartheid regime in South Africa he bolstered. The Bangladeshi dead he belittled. I always dreamed that a day would come when Kissinger would stand in a court for law and answer for his crimes. It almost happened. In May 2001, Kissinger was sojourning at the Ritz Hotel in Paris when he was summoned to appear before French Judge Roger Lelois as a witness in the case of five French nationals who had been, dis who had been disappeared during uh, the Pinochet dictatorship. Rather than take that occasion to explain himself and vindicate his reputation, Kissinger immediately fled France. Nor was Paris the only city in which he was pursued. Spanish judge Balthazar Gerzon unsuccessfully requested that Interpol detain the former U.S. Secretary of State to answer questions in the ongoing trial of Pinochet for human rights violations. The general was arrested in London, but finally remanded to Chile, where he died, never convicted, in 2006. Nor did Kissinger deign to respond to Argentine Judge Rodolfo Corral about the infamous and lethal U.S.-backed Operation Condor in Latin America or to Chilean Judge Juan Guzman about the murder of American citizen Charles Horman in the days just after the coup, a case that inspired the Costa Gavras film Missing. And yet I nursed the impossible dream. Kissinger in the dock. Kissinger held accountable for so much suffering a dream that vanished with his death. The more reason for that trial to happen in the court of public opinion. The disappearance, the disappearance of Chile, the forgotten dead of all those nations Kissinger devastated with his real politic, are crying out for justice. I do not wish that Kissinger may rest in peace. I hope, on the contrary, that the ghosts of those multitudes he damaged beyond repair will trouble his memory and haunt his history. Whether that happens depends, of course, on us, the living, on the willingness of humanity, amid the din and deluge of praise and eulogies, to listen to the hushed, receding voices of Kissinger's victims and vow never to forget. That was Saying Goodbye to Kissinger the Criminal by Ariel Dorfman from the Opinions section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 1st, 2023. Ariel Dorfman is the author of Death and the Maiden, and, more recently, the Suicide Museum, which investigates the death of Salvador Allende. Alright, let's keep you up to speed with what's going on in Israel. From the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 27th, 2023. U.S. girl 
Four more is among 17 more hostages released by Hamas. Israel frees 39 Palestinians as Biden seeks to extend four-day truce by Wafa, Sharafa, and Sami Magdi. Dear al-Bala, Gaza Strip The fragile temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas was back on track Sunday as the militants freed 17 more hostages, including 14 Israelis and the first American, and a third set of releases under a four-day truce that the U.S. said it hoped would be extended. In turn, Israel released 39 Palestinian prisoners. Most hostages were handed over directly to Israel, waving to a cheering crowd draped in flags as they arrived at an Air Force base. Others left through Egypt. Israel's army said one was airlifted to a hospital. President Biden said the elderly woman was very sick and was in need of immediate medical help. The hostages ranged in age from 4 to 84 and included Abigail Eden, a four-year-old dual Israeli-American citizen whose parents were killed in the Hamas attack that started the war on October 7. What she endured was unthinkable, Biden said of the youngest hostage freed under the truce. He did not know the condition. He did not have updates on other American hostages and said his goal was to extend the ceasefire deal as long as possible. In all, nine children ages 17 and younger were on the list, according to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office. Three more ties also, uh, were also released. Separately, Hamas said it had released one of the Russian hostages it was holding in response to the efforts of Russian President Vladimir Putin and as a show of appreciation for Moscow's position on the war. Israel's army radio had reported that it was an Israeli-Russian dual national. The dual citizen was the first male hostage to be freed. The Palestinian prisoners released were children and young men, ages 15 to 19, largely accused of public disorder, property damage, and in some cases causing or threatening physical harm to Israeli officers by throwing stones and Molotov cocktails. Many were scooped up from protests and confrontations with troops. Many Palestinians view prisoners held by Israel including those implicated in attacks as heroes resisting occupation and have celebrated their release. A fourth exchange is expected Monday, the last day of the ceasefire, during which a total of 50 hostages and 150 Palestinian prisoners are to be freed. Most are women and minors. We can get all hostages back home. We have to keep pushing, said two of Abigail's relatives, a great aunt and cousin, in a statement thanking mediators. International mediators led by the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar are trying to extend the ceasefire that began Friday. Hamas on Sunday, for the first time, said it would seek to extend the deal by looking to release a larger number of hostages. Netanyahu issued a statement saying he had spoken to Biden and reiterated his offer to extend the ceasefire by an additional day for every 10 hostages Hamas releases. But he said Israel would resume its offensive with all of our might once the truce expires. Ahead of the latest release, a body armor-clad Netanyahu visited the Gaza Strip, where he spoke with troops. At the end of the day, we will return every one, he said of the hostages, adding that we are continuing until the end, until victory. Nothing will stop us. It was unclear where he went in Gaza. Families from the southern Israeli town of Kefar Aza embraced, cried, and applauded at the news that hostages from their town had arrived in Israel. More than 70 members of the kibbutz of about 700 people were killed in the October 7 rampage and 18 were kidnapped. 
Hamas's military wing released a video showing militants handed over the hostages to Red Cross workers and paramedics, with some of the balaclava-wearing fighter, fi fighters and hostages waving goodbye to each other. In a separate development, Hamas announced that one of its top commanders had been killed, without saying where, when or how. Israel's military confirmed it. Hamas and other militant groups killed at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and kidnapped around 240 more in an October 7 rampage across southern Israel, igniting the war. Pressure from hostages' families has sharpened the dilemma facing Israel's leaders who seek to eliminate Hamas as a military and governing power while returning all the captives. More than 13,300 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's air and ground responses, roughly two-thirds of them women and minors, according to the health ministry and Hamas-ruled Gaza. International mediators led by the U.S. and Qatar are trying to extend the lull in fighting. The Israeli hostages freed Saturday included seven children and six women, ranging in age from 3 to 67. Most were from Kibbutz Biri, a community that Hamas militants ravaged during their October 7 attack. The freed hostages have mostly stayed out of the public eye. Hospitals said their physical condition has been good, aside from one who was shot during the attack and required surgery. Little is publicly known about the conditions of their captivity. Mirav Raviv, whose three relatives were released Friday, said they had been fed irregularly and lost weight. One reporter eating mainly bread and rice and sleeping on a makeshift bed of chairs pushed together. Hostages sometimes had to wait for hours to use the bathroom, she said. Al Nori, the nephew of Adina Moshi, 72, who was freed Friday, said his aunt had to adjust to the sunlight because she had been in complete darkness for weeks. The, reason, the released Palestinians included at least two women who had been given long sentences after being convicted by Israeli courts of violent attacks. The four-day ceasefire, which began Friday, was brokered by Qatar and Egypt and the United States. Israel has said the truce can be extended by an extra day for every additional 10 hostages freed, but has vowed to quickly resume its offensive once it ends. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the U.S. is working with all sides on the possibility that this deal gets extended to additional hostages beyond the initial 50. Hamas announced the death of Ahmed Gandur, who was a member of its top military council and in charge of northern Gaza. He is the highest-ranking militant known to have been killed in the fighting. Israel's military confirmed the death. Gandur had survived at least three Israeli attempts on his life and was involved in a cross-border attack in 2006 in which Palestinian militants captured an Israeli soldier, soldier according to the Counter-Extremism Project, an advocacy group based in Washington. Hamas said that he was killed along with three other senior militants, including Ayman Siam, who Israel says was in charge of the militant group's rocket-firing unit. The Israeli military mentioned both men in, November, in a November 16 statement, saying it had targeted an underground complex where Hamas leaders were hiding. The Israeli military claimed to have killed thousands of militants, including several mid-ranking commanders it has, it has identified by name. The pause in fighting has given some respite to Gaza's 2.3 million people, still reeling from the relentless Israeli bombardment that has driven three-quarters of the population from their homes and leveled residential areas. Rocket fire from Gaza militants into Israel has also gone silent.
war-weary Palestinians in northern Gaza, where the offensive has focused, returned to the streets. Entire city blocks in and around Gaza City have been gutted by airstrikes that hollowed out buildings and left behind rubble. In southern Gaza, where hundreds of thousands of people from the north have sought refuge, residents lined up outside gas stations, hoping to stock up on fuel. Palestinians who have tried to return to the north to see if their homes are intact have been turned back by Israeli troops. Many are desperate to return to their homes, but they open fire on anyone approaching from the south, said Rami Hazarin, who fled Gaza City last month. The Israeli military has ordered Palestinians to not return to the north and to stay about a half mile away from the border fence. The Palestinian Red Crescent Rescue Service said that Israeli forces opened fire Sunday on two farmers in central Gaza, killing one and wounding the other. It didn't provide further details. An Israeli military spokesperson said they weren't aware of the incidents. The United Nations says the truce has made it possible to scale up the delivery of food, water, and medicine to the largest volume since the start of the war, but it calls the amount of 160 to 200 trucks a day hardly enough. It was able to deliver fuel for the first time since the war began and to reach areas in the north for the first time in a month. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society said 50 Egyptian aid trucks crossed through checkpoints to reach Gaza City and northern areas Sunday. The war in Gaza has been accompanied by a surge in violence in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Palestinian health authorities said Sunday that five Palestinians were killed in an Israeli military raid in the northern West Bank city of Jenin that began the day before. The war toll in the West Bank is now 239. The Israeli army has conducted frequent military raids and arrested hundreds of Palestinians since the start of the war, mostly people it suspects of being Hamas members. That was U.S. Girl 4 is among 17 more hostages released by Hamas by Wafa, Sharafa, and Sami Magdi. On the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 27, 2023. Sharafa and Magdi write for the Associated Press and reported from Deir al-Bala and Cairo, respectively. All right, here's another Israeli story from the business section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, November 28, 2023. Musk visits Israel amid outcry over X. Tech CEO meets with Netanyahu and other leaders as accusations of anti-Semitism on his platform grow by Melanie Lidman and Kelvin Chan. Elon Musk, who's been under fire for endorsing an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory and wider accusations of anti-Semitism flourishing on his social media platform X, formerly Twitter, visited Israel on Monday, touring a kibbutz that was attacked last month by Hamas militants and holding talks with top leaders. The billionaire met with Israeli President Eisen Herzog, who scolded him over content on the platform, and joined Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for a tour of the Kafara Aza Kibbutz, a rural village that Hamas militants stormed October 7 in a deadly assault that launched the war. Musk wearing a protective vest and escorted by a phalanx of security personnel as rain fell, used his phone to take photos or videos of the devastation according to a video released by Netanyahu's office. Musk's visit came as Israel and Hamas reached a deal to extend a ceasefire for two more days. The Tesla chief executive and the prime minister visited the homes of some victims, including the family of Abigail Eden, a four-year-old girl with dual Israeli-U.S. citizenship who was held hostage by Hamas after her parents were killed.
She was released Sunday, and the latest round of exchanges during a ceasefire in Gaza that had been set to expire after Monday. It was jarring to see the scene of the massacre, Musk said later in, a, in an ex-Spaces conversation with Netanyahu. Musk, Musk said he was troubled by video and photos that the Prime Minister showed him of the killings of civilians, including children. In their online conversation, they spoke broadly about the conflict, the protests it had generated, Hamas, the Middle East, and more, but did not touch on anti-Semitism online. Netanyahu, who, had urged, who urged a rollback of such hatred in a September meeting with Musk, said he hoped Musk would be involved in building a better future. Musk replied, I'd love to help. Herzog did confront Musk, saying that the platform you lead, unfortunately, have a huge reservoir of hatred, hatred of Jews and anti-Semitism. The Israeli president was joined in the meeting by some of the families of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza, according to a statement from Herzog's office. Hatred of the Jews affects the behavior of people in many places around the world, and you have a huge role to play in this, Herzog told Musk. The ex-owner responded <clears throat> that it had been a difficult day emotionally after the tour and that we have to do whatever is necessary to stop the hate, according to Herzog's office. Referring to Hamas militants, Musk said, It's amazing what humans can do if they're fed lies since they were children. They will think that murdering innocents is a good thing, which shows how much propaganda can affect people's minds. Musk has faced accusations of an from the Anti-Defamation League, a prominent Jewish civil rights organization, and others of tolerating anti-Semitic messages on the platform since purchasing it last year. And the content on X has gained increased scrutiny since the war between Israel and Hamas began. A slew of big brands, including Disney and IBM, decided to stop advertising on the platform after a report by the liberal advocacy group Media Matters said ads were appearing alongside pro-Nazi content and white nationalist posts. In the same week, Musk responded on X to a user who accused Jews of hating white people and professing indifference to anti-Semitism by posting, You have said the actual truth. He has faced outcry, including from the White House. The billionaire who has described himself as a free speech absolutist tweeted during his Israel visit that actions speak louder than words. X has since sued Media Matters, saying the nonprofit manufactured the report to drive advertisers from the platform and destroy XCorp. An Israeli government spokesperson, Elon Levy, declined to say whether Musk was invited or came on his own. X did not respond to a request for comment. Israel also settled a spat with Musk over a Starlink satellite internet company, with Starlink agreeing to operate in Gaza only with government approval. As a result of this significant agreement, Starlink satellite units can only be operated in Israel with the approval of the Israeli Ministry of Communications, including the Gaza Strip, Communications Minister Shlomo Karhi tweeted. The two had tangled online previously, after Musk promised that Starlink would support connectivity to internationally recognized aid groups in Gaza, drawing a rebuke from Karhi, who said Israel would fight it because Hamas would use the service for militant activities. That was Musk visits Israel amid outcry over X by Melanie Lidman and Kelvin Chan. From the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 28, 2023, Lidman and Chan write for the Associated Press.
All right, one more Israel story here from the World Sector, the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 1st, 2023. Eight more Israeli hostages released under truce. A busload of 30 released Palestinian prisoners is welcomed home in West Bank by Wafa Sharafa, Jack Jeffrey, and Melanie Lidman. Dear Al-Bala, Gaza Strip. Hamas freed eight Israeli hostages Thursday in exchange for the release of more Palestinian prisoners under a last-minute deal to extend their ceasefire in Gaza by another day. But any further renewal of the truce, which was in its seventh day, could prove more daunting since Hamas is expected to see a higher price for many of the remaining hostages. Hamas freed six of the hostages hours after releasing two Israeli women Thursday afternoon. All were handed over to the Red Cross in Gaza and were being brought to Israel to be taken to hospitals and be reunited with their families, the Israeli military said. At least 10 Israelis a day, along with other nationals, have been released during the truce in return for Israel's release of at least 30 Palestinian prisoners. Asked why Hamas on Thursday was releasing fewer than 10 hostages as outlined in the ceasefire agreement, the military's chief spokesman, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, noted that 12 Israeli citizens had been released the day before, implying that the overall total had met Israeli demands. We insist on the maximum each day, he said. A busload of 30 Palestinian prisoners released by Israel was welcomed home in the West Bank city of Ramallah, where dozens of men, some holding green Hamas flags, greeted the prisoners. International pressure has mounted for the truce to continue as long as possible after weeks of Israeli bombardment and a ground campaign following Hamas's deadly October 7 attack on Israel that triggered the war. Thousands of Palestinians in Gaza have been killed, and more than three-quarters of the population of 2.3 million have been uprooted, leading to a humanitarian crisis. Israel has vowed to resume the fighting, with the goal of dismantling Hamas once the ceasefire ends. The ceasefire was set to expire Friday, though international mediators were working to extend it. The talks appeared to be growing tougher, with Hamas having already freed most of the women and children it kidnapped on, on October 7. The militants are expected to make greater demands in return for freeing scores of civilian men and soldiers. Roughly 140 hostages are, be, are believed to remain in Hamas captivity. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken, who met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other top officials on his third visit to the region since the start of the war, said he hoped the ceasefire could be extended and more hostages could be released. Blinken also said that if Israel resumes the war and moves against southern Gaza to pursue Hamas, it must do so in compliance with international humanitarian law and must have a clear path in place to protect civilians. He said Israeli leaders understood that the massive levels of civilian life and displacement scale we saw in the north must not be repeated in the south. Most of Gaza's population is now crammed into the south, no exit. However, Raising questions over how an Israeli ground assault backed by a bombardment can avoid heavily, heavy civilian casualties. Qatar and Egypt, which have played a key role in mediating, are seeking to prolong the deal by two days, according to Dia Rashwan, the head of the Egypt's State Information Service. Thursday morning, Palestinian gunmen opened fire on people waiting for buses along a main highway uh, entering Jerusalem, killing at least three people and wounding several others, according to Israeli police. The two attackers, brothers from a neighborhood in annexed East Jerusalem, were killed. 
After the attack, six other members of the family were detained and the government ordered their house to be demolished. Hamas claimed responsibility for the attack, casting it as retaliation for the killing of women and children in Gaza and the occupied West Bank and other Israeli crimes. The attack did not appear to threaten the truce in Gaza, but escalating violence, including Israeli raids in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, could blow back the wreck uh, to wreck uh, the quiet in Gaza, even though these areas are not covered under the ceasefire. On Wednesday, Israeli troops killed two Palestinian boys during a raid in Jenin, according to Palestinian health officials. The Israeli military separately said the raid killed two Islamic Jihad militants. Netanyahu is under pressure from families of the hostages to bring them home, but his far-right governing partners are also pushing him to continue the war until Hamas is destroyed and could abandon his coalition if he is seen as making too many concessions. Israel says it will maintain the truce until Hamas stops releasing captives, at which point it will resume military operations aimed at eliminating the group, even as the Biden administration has urged it to operate with far greater precision if it does so. The initial truce, which began November 24, has now been extended twice, calling for the release of women and children. Israeli officials said before Thursday's hostage releases that the Gaza militants still hold around 30 women and children who would all be released within a few days at the current rate. The two women released earlier on Thursday, who are 21 and 40 years old, have returned to Israel. Hamas said it handed them over to the Red Cross in Gaza City, suggesting they may have been held in northern Gaza, where Israeli troops have controlled much of the area for weeks and have been searching for hostages. It's not clear how many of the remaining female hostages might be soldiers. For soldiers and the civilian men still in captivity, Hamas is expected to demand the release of high-profile Palestinians convicted of deadly attacks, something Israel has strongly resisted in the past. Israel says around 125 men are still held hostage, including several dozen soldiers. The 30 Palestinians released by Israel on Thursday included Uh, include 22 teenagers and 8 Israeli-Palestinian women who were arrested since the war started, most of them for pro-Palestinian social media posts, according to the Palestinian Prisoners Club, which advocates for prisoners. Israeli authorities have carried out a crackdown on such posts, arresting more than 270 Palestinian citizens on allegations of inciting violence, according to rights groups. The Palestinians released so far under the ceasefire have mostly been teenagers accused of throwing stones and firebombs at Israeli forces. Several of the freed women were convicted by military courts of attempting to attack soldiers, some of them after being found carrying scissors or knives near security possessions. Before Thursday's releases, a total of 75 Israelis, including dual nationals, had been freed during the truce, most of whom appeared physically well but shaken. An additional 24 hostages, 25 Thais and 1 Filipino, have also been released, including several men. Hamas and other uh, Palestinian militants killed over 1,200 people, mostly civilians, in their wide-ranging attack across southern Israel that day and took around 240 people captive. Authorities have have only ever provided approximate figures. Israel's bombardment and ground invasion of Gaza have killed more than 13,300 Palestinians, roughly two-thirds of them women and minors, according to the health ministry in Hamas-ruled Gaza, which does not differentiate between civilians and combatants. 
The tone is probably much higher, as officials have only sporadically updated the account since November 11. The ministry says thousands more people are feared dead under the rubble. That was eight more Israeli hostages released under truce by Jack Wafa, by, by Wafa Sharafa, Jack Jeffrey, and Melanie Lidman from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 1st, 2023. Sharafa, Jeffrey, and Lidman write for the Associated Press. Jeffrey reported from Cairo, Lidman from Jerusalem. Uh, AP writers Matthew Lee in, in, in Tel Aviv, Joseph Fetterman in Jerusalem, Najib Jobain in Rafa, Gaza Strip, and Karim Shehayeb in Beirut contributed. Right here is another international story from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, November 28, 2023. Europe's Jews shaken by rise in hatred. Anti-Semitism is spiking after Hamas's October 7 massacre and Israel's bombardment of the Gaza Strip by Jamie Keaton and Laura Kelman. Geneva. As he sits in Geneva, Mikhail Dreyfus does not feel at all that far away from the Hamas attack on, it, on Israel on October 7 and Israel's subsequent bombardment of Gaza. The ripples are rolling through Europe and appending assumptions both global and intimate, including those about his personal safety as a Jew. Yesterday, I bought a tear gas spray canister at a military equipment surplus store. The 64-year-old retired tech sector worker said this month at a rally to mark a month since the Hamas killings and kidnappings. The choice, he says, is a precaution driven by a surge of anti-Semitism in Europe. The slangs of about 1,200 people in Israel, most of them civilians by Palestinian militants, represented the biggest killing of Jews since the Holocaust. The fallout from it and from Israel's intense military response that health controls and uh, health officials in Gaza control and Hamas controlled Gaza has said says has, say has killed at least 13,300 Palestinians has extended to Europe. In doing so, it has shaken a continent all too familiar with deadly anti-Jewish hatred for centuries. The last century is of particular note, of course. Concern about rising anti-Semitism in Europe is fueled in part by what happened to Jews before and during World War II, and that makes it particularly fearsome for those who may be only one or two generations removed from people who were the victims of Nazi brutality. Many Jews interviewed said they are most chilled by what they see as the lack of empathy for the Israelis killed during the early morning massacre and for the relatives of the hostages who have been suspended in an agonizing limbo. What really upsets me, Holocaust survivor Herbert Traub said at a Paris event commemorating the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, the 1938 government-backed pogroms against Jews in Germany and Austria, is to say that there isn't a massive popular reaction against this. Anti-Semitism is broadly defined as hatred of Jews, but a debate has been raging for years over what actions and words should be labeled anti-Semitic. Criticism of Israel's policies and anti-Semitism have long been conflated by Israeli leaders such as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and some watchdog groups. Critics say that blurring helps undermine opposition to the country's policies and amps up perceptions that any utterance or incident against Israeli policy is anti-Semitic. Some language, whether for or against Israel or for the Palestinians, makes it sound like a football match, said Susan Neiman of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam, Germany. We are perpetrating the idea that you've got to be on one side or the other instead of being on the side of human rights and justice, she said.
Others argue that anti-Semites are off, often use criticism of Israel as a placeholder for expressing their views. The list of examples of anti-Jewish sentiments since the October 7 attacks is long and documented by governments and watchdog groups across Europe. Little more than a month after the attack in Israel, the French Interior Ministry said 1,247 anti-Semitic incidents have been reported since October 7, nearly three times the total for all of 2022. Denmark's main Jewish association case said cases were up 24 times from the average of the last nine months. The Community Security Trust, which tracks anti-Semitic incidents in Britain, reported more than 1,000 such events, the most ever recorded for a 28-day period. That all comes despite widespread denunciations of anti-Jewish hatred and support for Israel from leaders in Europe since the attack. Some of Europe's Jews say they see it on the streets and the news. Jewish schoolchildren face bullying or, in one instance, have been asked to explain Israel's actions according to Britain's Community Security Trust. There's been, there's been talk of blending in, covering skullcaps, and perhaps hiding mezuzahs, the traditional symbol on doorposts of Jewish homes. In Russia, a riot broke out at an airport in which there were some anti-Semitic chants and posters from a crowd of men looking for passengers who had arrived from Israel. An assailant stabbed a Jewish woman twice in the stomach at her home in Lyon, France, according to her lawyer. In Prague's Little Quarter last month, staffers at the well-known hippopotamus bar refused to serve beer to several tourists from Israel and their Czech guides, and some patrons delivered insults. Police had to step in. In Berlin, Jews are still reeling from an attempted firebombing of a synagogue last month. Some of us are in a state of panic, said Anna Siegel, 37, the manager of Kahal Adas Jisrael in Berlin, a community of 450 members. Some community members are changing how they live, Segal said. Students no longer wear uniforms. Kindergarten classes don't leave the building for field trips or the playground next door. Some members no longer call taxis or they hesitate to order deliveries to their homes. Hebrew speaking in public is fading. Some wonder if they should move to Israel. I hear more and more people from the Jewish community who say they feel safer and more comfortable in Israel now than in Germany despite the war and all the rockets, Sigal said, because they don't have to hide there. And in pro-Palestinian demonstrations, some protesters are shouting, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Some say that's a call for Palestinian freedom and it's not anti-Jewish but anti-Israel. The land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea includes not only Israel, but also the West Bank and East Jerusalem, where Palestinians have lived under Israeli occupation since 1967. Many Jews, though, say that Shant is inherently anti-Jewish and calls for the destruction of Israel. Faced with fears that anti-Semitism will spread, communities are taking action. A hotline has been set up in France to help provide support for Jews. The Community Security Trust and British government distribu distribute primers on how to address anti-Semitism in schools. Peggy Hicks, a director at the UN Human Rights Office, says the actions of governments and political movements are fair game for criticism, but warned against discrimination, which the Geneva-based office has long battled. In the chaos of the last weeks, she sees reason to hope. I've been amazed in the course of my working in human rights about the amount of compassion and the resilience of human beings, Hicks said. 
people who have lost children and come together on both sides of a conflict, who have shared a loss but from opposing sides, and who have found a way to get past the fact that they should actually be enemies. She added, I don't think everybody has the ability to show that kind of courage, but the fact that it exists, I think, gives us all something to aspire to. That was Europe's Jews Shaken by Rise and Hatred by Jamie Keaton and Laurie, Laurie Kelman from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 28, 2023. Associated Press writers Keaton and Kelman reported from Geneva and London, respectively. AP writers Kirsten Grishaber in Berlin, Sylvia Stellacci in Rome, Karola Janicek in Prague, Lauren Cook in Brussels, Yari Tanner in Helsinki, Vanessa Gira in Warsaw, and John Leicester and Sylvie Corbet in Paris contributed to this report. And now for something a little more back home from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, also Tuesday, November 28, 2023, ex-porn star's accusers feeling betrayed. A judge decides to release Ron Jeremy to a private residence due to poor health by James Queeley. When Ilana Evans found out Ron Jeremy's rape case would end with him being released to a private residence, she said it left her emotionally drained and completely derailed. A longtime adult film entertainer and president of the Adult Performance Artists Guild, Evans testified before the Los Angeles County Grand Jury that indicted Jeremy on more than 30 counts of sexual assault in 2021 and spent years working with women in the porn industry who decided who decided to speak out against one of its most legendary figures. It was unlike Jeremy would ever stand trial for a court to after a court declared him mentally incompetent in January because of symptoms related to severe dementia, but Evans said Friday's news felt like a final knife twist. I feel betrayed because at no point along the way, during this path of, of Ron is suffering from dementia and the incompetence issue coming up, never did they say who could be sent home. It was, he'll, it always, it was always he'll go to a facility, Evans said. We all came forward. We all told our stories. We all put this effort into their case, and I feel 100% let down by the system. A judge's decision to order Jeremy released into private care last week seemingly ended uh, seemingly ended uh, the four-year legal saga that saw dozens of women accuse America's most famous porn star of rape after he was arrested of sexual assault charges in 2020. Accusations, accus, accusations came from sex workers who knew Jeremy for decades and patrons of Sunset Strip bars whom Jeremy allegedly attacked at random. In one incident, prosecutors said Jeremy allegedly assaulted a 15-year-old girl at a Santa Barbara house party. Jeremy has denied all wrongdoing. The 70-year-old uh, fitness to stand trial has been in question since last March when Jeremy's criminal defense attorney walked into a downtown L.A. courtroom and insisted his client did not recognize him. News that Jeremy will now be released to a facility that may not even have security has rolled, roiled many of the women who made the decision to speak out about his alleged abuse on porn sets and at industry parties dating back nearly 30 years. After the public discord, Prosecutors filed a motion asking a judge to reconsider Jeremy's placement, according to Tiffany Blacknell, Director of Communications for the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. That hearing will take place Thursday. 
I am profoundly disturbed by the release of Ron Jeremy, who is accused, who is accountable for serial rapes based on the grounds of deteriorating dementia. While recognizing the importance of addressing health issues, it is crucial for the justice system to balance the rights of the accused with the safety of the community. Leanne Young, who first accused Jeremy of assault in a 2020 interview with the Times, said in a statement. The situation underscores the need for careful consideration of public safety concerns, she added, as well as a thorough evaluation of legal and ethical implications surrounding the release of individuals facing serious criminal charges. Court records show Jeremy's health declined to the point that he was placed under the care of a conservator in March. In court, on November 17, attorneys advocating for Jeremy argued he is now essentially bedridden and no longer a threat to the public according to an email obtained by the Times. Jeremy has been held in the medical wing of the Twin Towers Correctional Facility in downtown L.A. since January. Despite the allegations made against Jeremy, he has not been convicted of a crime. He is unlikely to recover from his dementia and be restored to competency, according to court records, meaning he cannot be housed in a state cat hospital. That left his conservator to seek to have him housed in a private medical facility with a secured perimeter dementia ward, according to a filing submitted to the Mental Health Court in August. As of July, however, nine such facilities refused to take Jeremy on as a patient. A Ventura County facility did consider caring for Jeremy, but also ultimately rejected him, courts show. The court filings do not state a reason for the facility's decision. Uh, Jeremy's conservator declined to speak with the Times. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office opposed the judge's decision last week to release Jeremy, expressing concern that he might try to assault caregivers. But a judge in the Hollywood Mental Health Court overruled the prosecutor's objection. It remains unclear exactly where Jeremy will be housed. The District Attorney's Office referred to questions to an attorney for Jeremy's conservator who did not return a call seeking comment. Some of those who worked hardest to bring Jeremy to justice, however, said it was time to move on. Ginger Banks, a performer and sex worker advocate who compiled more than 100 accusations of groping and assault against Jeremy in 2017, said she truly believes he is too sick to do any more damage. I really don't think he has the mental capacity or the physical capacity to hurt anybody right now, and I think the point of our justice system should be to prevent people from hurting other people until they're rehabilitated, she said. Banks, who says Jeremy groped her the first time they met, believes he has been convicted in the court of public opinion, and his and his hopeful fallout of the broader hashtag MeToo movement will lead women to continue speaking out. We've seen a complete change in society about women coming forward about this. I think that societal sh societal shift is going to outweigh this one this one court decision, Banks said. Young echoed those statements, saying victims need to continue coming forward even when the legal system doesn't produce the outcome they hoped for. Reporting a sexual assault can lead to increased awareness, support, and resources for survivors, she said. It's my sincere hope that despite my experience, survivors will find the strength to share their stories and seek justice. But Evans said she believes Jeremy got away with dozens of assaults and that the end result of the court case will only embolden his defenders within the adult film industry. A number of actors and producers, including some, uh, Evan, some Evans' counts as friends, still believe Jeremy is innocent. 
the lack of a conviction she fears will only further discourage other entertainers, adult entertainers, from calling out abusive behavior in their industry. They absolutely think that this absolves him and that this is the most alarming part. This sets precedence. This sets a tone that it's okay for this behavior, she said. In, a 27, in 2017, after a Rolling Stone article first brought allegations against Jeremy into the public eye, Evans said she was invited to lunch by Jeremy and the producers of several films she'd worked on. They were hoping she'd use her position as head of the union representing the vast majority of adult film performers to speak out on Jeremy's behalf. Evans was stunned. Jeremy had allegedly assaulted her in 2008 by running his hand up her skirt and she'd confronted him about it before. It was as if he didn't remember or didn't care, she said. I feel his hands. That disgustingness does not ever go away, she said, adding that she is skeptical Skeptical Jeremy is truly as sick as his advocates claim. An official with direct knowledge of Jeremy's health who spoke to the Times on condition of anonymity in order to discuss his medical condition candidly insisted that disgraced porn, porn king will not be enjoying himself wherever he ends up. It's not like he's going to be living his best life. He has no idea what's going on, the official said. He's going to be a prisoner in his own body. That was ex-porn star's accusers feel betrayed by James Queeley from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 28, 2023. All right, let's move on to some other, other news. And we go to this one. Actually, this is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, November 26, 2023. For Hanukkah, fry like the Romans do. The city's Jewish cuisine demonstrates a fritter frenzy by Leah Koenig. From crisp and velvety fried artichokes to honey-soaked matzo fritters studded with pine nuts and raisins, the Jews of Rome have a centuries-long passion for frying food. This obsession is evident year-round at the many restaurants lining the main street of Rome's historic Jewish neighborhood. There, menus invariably feature fried artichokes along with fresh, with fried fresh anchovies, battered bacala, salt cod, and stuffed risotto croquets. But Roman Jews' fritter frenzy peaks on a Hanukkah when eating fried food is paramount. Hanukkah, which is December 7th to the 15th this year, commemorates the victory of a small Judean army called Maccabees over the ancient Greeks and the rededication of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. As the story goes, the Maccabees found only enough olive oil among the ruins of the temple to light its menorah for one night, but the oil miraculously burned for eight nights, so frying in oil is an essential part of the holiday. It is a source of joy and comfort every year on Hanukkah, and particularly so this year, uh, as the world grapples with war and sorrow in the Middle East. To celebrate Hanukkah, Ashkenazi Jews traditionally indulge in fried potato latkes, and Sephardi Jews eat a variety of donuts and other goodies. But in Rome, the deep-fried potential is endless. The Jewish community of Rome dates back more than 2,000 years and has existed there continuously ever since. Throughout the millennia, Jews were regarded with varying degrees of tolerance and disdain by the wider community and at times were subjected to intense persecution. Most impactfully, between 1555 and 1871, Rome's Jews were compelled by a papal decree to live in the Roman ghetto, a four-block-wide gated slum along the Tiber River that was cramped and, fl and flood-prone. 
Their personal and spiritual lives were restricted in myriad ways, from not being allowed to engage in most professions to being forced to attend Sunday Mass at one of the churches just beyond the gates of the ghetto. Ironically, these centuries of strife helped uh, shape a, tidy, a tightly knit community with a proud and distinct culture. And its cuisine, which is defined by its simple but full-flavored approach to cooking vegetables, hearty stews, and braises, and delicate desserts made with almond flour, ricotta, and sour cherries, is unlike any other in the world. One of the professions allowed to Jews during the ghetto period was being frigatory, literally friars. In other words, street vendors selling fried vegetables and fish to passers-by. Along with the abundance of inexpensive locally produced olive oil, this restriction helped to solidify the centrality of fried food in Roman Jewish cuisine. The fact that fried foods are undeniably delicious didn't hurt either. Today, Rome's 17,000 Jews live scattered throughout the city, but the historic ghetto neighborhood remains a center for the community. And on Hanukkah, just like the rest of the year, Roman Jews fry. Some fritters, like fried zucchini blossoms stuffed with melted mozzarella and anchovies, are beloved in all Roman kitchens. Others, like torzelli, a sultry tangle of deep-fried curly endive, are, are specific to the Jewish community. And still others, like the battered and fried vegetable melange widely called frito misto, but called tazziti fritti or fried pieces by Rome's Jews, are enjoyed widely but have their roots in the Roman Jewish kitchen. Fried mixed vegetables, which I invariably order whenever I dine in Rome and also love to make at home, transform whatever bits and bobs you have into your in your vegetable crisper to into an edible magic. The Paziti Fritti recipe in my cookbook, Fortico Cooking and Feasting in Rome's Jewish Kitchen, calls for green beans, mushrooms, fennel, and zucchini, but you can absolutely improvise. Onion, potato, parsnips, and even mozzarella, whatever you have is good, said Giovanni Terracina, the co-founder of Roman kosher catering company Le Bon Ton. In Rome, I learned from Terracini, batters are traditionally quick thick, quite thick, fully encasing whatever is inside. My personal take on the batter is a bit lighter, allowing the mix of vegetables to shine. Served with a generous squeeze of lemon juice, they are magnificent. The apple fritters a mele frite in Portigo is another favorite dish. My recipe is inspired by one I found in Dal 1880 at Oggi, La Cucina Ebreca della Mia Famiglia. From 1880 to today, my family's Jewish cuisine. A handwritten cookbook published in 1982 by Donatella Lemontani Pavoncello. Pavoncello includes mele fritti, apple rings coated in batter and fried until they are etherally crisp and light outside and custardly sweet within in her Hanukkah menu. And now I do too, because I am never giving up my potato latkes, but when it comes to Hanukkah, why not also fry like the Romans do? That was for Hanukkah, Fried Like the Romans Do by Leah Koenig. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 26, 2023. Leah Koning is the author of seven cookbooks, most recently Partico, Cooking and Feasting in Rome's Jewish Kitchen, W.W. Norton Publishing. She also writes a weekly Substack newsletter called The Jewish Table.
All right, let's go to a couple of book reviews here. This first one is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 12th, 2023. A Very Clever, Pretty Dark Future by Ilana Massad. It's well known by now that the super wealthy are planning for the apocalypse. Whether they're buying luxury bunkers or island nations, it's clear that billionaires are preparing for the end of days with lavish and secure spaces where they hope to ride out whatever catastrophe might strike humanity next. Beginning Naomi Alderman's new book, The Future, you'd be forgiven for thinking that its main subjects are exactly such billionaires. As the first three chapters describe mega-wealthy tech giants uh, Link Sketish, Zimri Nomik, and Ellen Bywater, each learning that it's time to run to their refugees of choice. But the novel is not really about them, and thank goodness for that. It would be hard, I suspect, for many readers to sustain interest in the richest people on Earth living easy while the rest of humanity struggled. The plot of the future really focuses on the events leading up to the billionaires receiving notice that the end is nigh. Altman's fifth novel closely follows two very different sorts of survivalists. Martha Einkorn, raised in a cult she escaped from, now a personal assistant to Sketlish, and Lei Zhen, a former refugee and a top 50 creator on the Name the Day forum and ranked number one for expertise in technological survival, which is to say, a survivalist influencer. That is, this is already a real thing. We learn of Martha in the first chapter, but we meet Zen several months before the billionaires are forewarned. She's at the Seasons Time Mall in Singapore, the biggest retail experience in the world, where she suddenly needs to go into true survival mode because she's just been shot at by what she'll deduce as an Enochit extremist. The Enochites, E-N-O-C-H-I-T-E-S, coincidentally, are the cult from which Martha escaped. In fact, she is the leader Enoch's daughter. The Enochites, Zen recalls, thought the end of days was coming soon. They, they were gathering evidence, piecing together prophecies with current events, matching one thing with another. Since Zen it teaches people to survive, rather than wait for God to decide who lives or dies, and since she's very visible on Name the Day, a survivalist forum the Enochites organize on, it's not inconceivable that she would be become a target. What's far more mysterious is why her wearable smart device has a program on it called AUGR, which helps her neutralize her would-be assassin. The mysteries accumulate in part because the novel is told out of chronological order, beginning with the end, or at least an end, and jumping back and forth between various events leading up to it, ramping up the tension and dropping in nuggets of information along the way. In between the sections, there are extracts from Name the Day, many of them posts from One Corn, a frequent user who often writes about Genesis, especially the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham, and Lot. So the Talmud says it was an evil place, one corn writes. It was a crime in Sodom to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. Beggars were given marked coins that no shop would accept. Wealth? In the, United, in the USA right now, there are places where it's a crime to help homeless people. Plenty of stores don't accept, fo stores don't accept food stamps. So are we in it? Do we have enough sense to get ourselves out if we are? Are we? Do we? In real life, it remains to be seen. 
but the future gives us one possible answer. Much as it's about a potential future, this is also recognizably our world. Social media reigns supreme, while the billionaires who own it pretend they don't control the world by, complain- by complaining, for example, about how hard, it, how hard it is to find plastic straws. The future's largest tech companies aren't Google, Amazon, Apple, and Meta, but rather Fantail, think Meta on steroids, Anvil, a kind of Amazon++, and Medlar Technologies, a personal computing company, something like Apple and Microsoft combined. These companies aren't the root of all evil, of course, but much like our own tech giants, they're near monopolies that emphasize the accumulation of wealth and the development of new tech over morality or the common good, all the while loudly claiming to benefit humanity. Alderman has written about the end of the world before, in her best-selling novel, The Power, uh, which Anvil, sorry, Amazon, has adapted into a TV show. <clears throat> a cataclysmic set of events sends humanity back to the Stone Age, and a different sort of society emerges from the ashes. But the future is less grim. Instead, it harbors a stubborn sense of optimism, theorizing that if helmed the richest and most powerful companies, they might be able to steer the ship of humanity to safety. I could nitpick the details in Alderman's approach. A glaring hole in her tech optimism, for instance, is a disregard for the influence wielded by the oil industry and its shareholders, but I'd rather not. The future is so pleasing and page-turning a read, it's so, so full of intrigue, emotional depth, and a delicious conclusion that I didn't want it to end. That alderman, who was raised Orthodox Jewish, manages to mine the book of Genesis in exciting ways, making accessible the parables of community, conflict, and survival found in its pages, is an added and surprising bonus. It's almost enough to make you believe, despite the evidence, that the bleakest of futures isn't inevitable. That was A Very Clever, clever Pretty Dark Future by Ilana Massad, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 12, 2023. Masad is a books and culture critic and author of All My Mother's Lovers. Right here's another one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, November 23, 2023. Writer brings the art monsters together. Elkin explains the inspirations and surprising opinions behind her new book by Jessica Ferry. There came a point when Lauren Elkin realized her book in progress was becoming a blob. As the writer Chris Krauss defines it, the book is the book as blob, uns- uh, swallowing and engorging, unwise and unstoppable. Elkin introduces Art Monsters, a book about unruly bodies and feminist art with an epigraph from Virginia Woolf reflecting that the adventure of telling the truth about my own experiences as a body is for her still unrealized. That is the driving force of the, this book, what unites all monsters within it. Approaching my conversation with Elkin, which was held over video chat from her home in London, I wondered what to ask about. What ask her about? Carol Walker's Sugar Sphinx? The controversy surrounding Dana Schultz's painting of Emmett Till, Open, ca- open Casket? What Carolee Sch- uh, Schneckman pro- uh, pulling a scroll out of her vagina had to do with three guineas? Wolf's 1938 indictment of the connection between patriarchy and fascism? Elkin's own experience as a body is also in play. 
I'm sure if this book had been written before the pandemic, free motherhood, it would be a completely different book, Elkin said. But then I thought, why am I trying to make a book about monstrous art into some obedient traditional little book? Elkin spoke to the Times in a conversation edited for length and clarity. Question. Can you say a bit about how you came, up, came to write this book? Answer. I started writing it for real in 2017. My PhD advisor, Jane Marcus, died. She's responsible for changing the way we read Wolf in the States, at least, from this snobby upper crust crazy lady to this radical pacifist and socialist. I wanted my next book to play into this legacy. I'm not a joiner. I see my, I see my writing and my teaching as, as my activism. The whole book was going to be about Wolf's three guineas. I had in mind that I wanted to write a war book about Wolf, but I felt like I wasn't done writing about women in public space. I was writing toward, uh, toward that. Question. I was shocked to learn that Wolf's close friends and family didn't like Three Guineas. They didn't think she should be writing such an angry book about war. Answer. Yes. E.M. Forster infamously said, after Wolf died, that feminism was a blight on her book. That her writing was so beautiful, her prose was such an achievement, and that her writing about feminism and pacifism and politics in general were spots on her greater contribution to literature. Question. Many of the artists you cover are grappling with war. From Wolf to Schneemann, who created work about Vietnam, and Martha Rosler, who collaged ma uh, magazine spreads together with war photos. It made me think of Sylvia Plath, who was accused of anti-Semitism for appropriating Jewish identity and the Holocaust in her poem, Daddy. Answer. As a Jewish woman, I have never read that poem as anti-Semitic. If anything, I'm grateful to Plath for drawing attention to the horrors of the Holocaust. It is an appropriation, but she's using it as a metaphor. It is cringy for sure to see her compare herself to a Jew, but that was some some of what I was trying to do with this book. It's called Art Monsters, by the way, not rah-rah amazing art heroines. Some of these artists are monstrous. Certainly the art is monstrous because it forces us to go places that are out of our comfort zone. Question. In your discussion of a recent controversy in the art world, Dana Schultz's painting of Emmett Till, Open Casket, you say you agree it should have been destroyed. This surprised me. Why do you think so? Answer. It isn't as if Dana Schultz is painting herself as Till, but she is making a portrait of him in his casket with no awareness of her whiteness or of the gaze. I think it is problematic for an artist to be lazy about looking. Till's casket had a sheet of glass laid over it, so in all of the photographs taken, you can see the reflection of the people looking down at his body. Without that glaze or interest in looking, that's a problem. As a white woman, perhaps, her place is to be thinking about whiteness. When we have people saying this artwork traumatized me, it hurts me, and it's not generating a conversation, then you have to wonder, what is the purpose? Question. <clears throat> you write jubilantly about the artists you love, but so many of those in your book die horrific, tragic deaths. Eva Hess of a brain tumor at age 34, Anna Wilkie of lymphoma at 52, Helen Chadwick of a heart attack at 42, Anna Mendieta was murdered when she was 36, Teresa Hack Kyung C.H. was raped and murdered at 31. How is this possible? Answer. 
I asked myself this question so many times when I was writing this book. I wasn't trying to find women who have come to bad ends. I think obviously racism and misogyny kill women. They still do. Even though this is a group of women from all different backgrounds, racism and misogyny, even in medicine, these things kill women. Question. Do you think recent cancellations of iconic male artists have opened up a space for audiences to be more engaged with the work of women artists and artists of color? Answer. I'm not a fan of cancel culture. It shoots down interesting people without describing what you mean by calling something or someone problematic. These, te these, these should be teachable moments rather than just throwing the art and the artist away. For instance, why make, does it make me cringe when Plath calls itself a Jew in Daddy. Perhaps it has opened up more space for artists who are underrepresented, but cancel culture is destructive to art. It's really up to the consumer of the art. You have to ask yourself, what am I getting from this? If Kathy Acker's pussy, King of the Pirates, gives you more sustenance than Jonathan Frazen's The Corrections, then go to pussy. Question. Perhaps this is an annoying question, but do you think you would have written this book had you not become a mother? Answer, I don't think this is an annoying question at all. I don't see why we can't talk about this, though we need to ask men this too. It would be a totally different book. The connection to the body that so many of these artists are working through, if I hadn't become pregnant when I was working on this proposal or experienced childbirth or early motherhood, it would have been completely intellectualized. Now I know what the monstrosity of the body is. Question. Can you be an art monster if you're a parent? Answer. I think you're certainly, you certainly can create monstrous art and art in general if you are a parent with the right support and under the right conditions. Perhaps you can't be an art monster, but you can create monstrous art. Anyway, I hope so. That was Writer Brings the Art Monsters Together by Jessica Ferry from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, November 23rd, 2023. The name of the book is Art Monsters, Unruly Bodies in Feminist Art by Lauren Elkin from FSG Publishing, 368 pages, cost $35. Alright, now here are two separate little articles under the, uh, the title of Mystery Writers Reveal What We're Dying to Know. That's by Paula L. Woods. This is from the calendar section, Sunday, November 26, 2023. And we go to this book, Calico by Lee Goldberg from Severn House Publishing, 320 pages, cost $32. Goldberg's mystery western mashup features Beth McDade, a hard-drinking, libidinous detective exiled by an LAPD scandal to the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Station in Barstow where the interstate goes in only one direction, away. But when a series of accidents and the vanishing of family man Owen Slater mysteriously take place on the same date, February 2nd, 2019, Beth has to clean up her act. McDade's investigation in the present juxtaposed with the authentically, authentically depicted 19th century silver mining camp that became Calico Ghost Town pushes the novel into X-Files territory, but the suspense is on the level. Question. What makes your protagonist so interesting to write about? Answer. Owen is an ordinary man in an extraordinary situation, and every man without any super skills or an encyclopedic knowledge of the past. The only thing he can do is prepare a good meal. Beth is a disgraced cop seeking personal redemption in a brutally unforgiving place and profession. She can never go back and undo what happened, 
and it seems she has no future. Question. What gave you the most joy in writing this novel? Answer. I believe the key to writing a genre mashup is not to write one. The trick to accomplishing that contradiction is to create a narrative and emotional through line uh, that is so compelling that the readers are unaware of the genres at play. They are too invested in the characters and the story to ask themselves, what am I reading? And then you have to make it look effortless, as if this was the natural way the story had to be told. Question. If you were trapped in an escape room and had to team up with other mystery thriller writers or their characters, who would make the cut? Answer. I'd want to be with Donald Westlake's Parker for his criminal and logistic, uh, logistical cunning, Lee Child's Jack Reacher for his brute force and relentless determination, and Rex Stout's narrow wolf for his brute intellect and sharp eye for detail. That's... Uh, that's, that's uh, Lee, Lee Goldberg, and his book is Calico from Severn House Publishing. 320 pages, cost $32. And the second one is Here in the Dark by Alexis Soliski from Flatiron Books Publishing. 256 pages, cost $28. Vivian Perry, the junior theater critic and Soliski's debut, knows her way around a bar. A sprang fully formed from the portable Dorothy Parker and a shoebox full of playbills. But then she meets David Adler, a graduate student who interviews her for his master's thesis and digs, in, digs a little too deep, cracking her hard shell. After he vanishes, Perry is thrust into a cats and mouse trap game that draws on Soliski's own history as a theater critic, currently with the New York Times. She knows of what she writes and writes beautifully about it, but her portrait of the critic as a young millennial also keeps us at a chilly distance from the intricate puzzle of Adler's disappearance. Question. What makes your protagonist so interesting to write about? Answer. I'm a mother of young children and fundamentally risk-averse. It's no accident that I dreamed up a heroine who runs toward the danger. When it comes to fiction, safe choices aren't any fun. Question. What gave you the most joy in writing this novel? Answer. I've never written a play in my life, and I've never wanted to. To render a story exclusively in dialogue? God, it's too hard. But there's such joy in writing conversation, especially when the voices of the characters take over and the words zigzag down the page like forked lightning. Question. If you were trapped in an escape room and had to team up with other mystery thriller writers or their characters, who would make the cut? Answer. I'll take two absolute masters of the locked room genre, John Dixon Carr, and Soji Shimada, although Shimada is a little gory for me. And while they're busy freeing us, I'll be chatting in the corner with Dorothy B. Hughes, or maybe Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe. What can I say? I love a man who gets hit on the head a lot. And that's about uh, Alexis Solowski's novel Here in the Dark from Flatiron Books Publishing, 256 pages, cost $28. And those are under the Article titled, Mystery Writers Reveal What We're Dying to Know by Paula L. Woods. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 26, 2023, Woods will be in conversation with Soliski about Here in the Dark at Book Soup at 7 p.m. December 11. All right, we continue from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 27, 2023. Old Divide Splits Two of Israel's New Historians. And so this first one is Benny Morris' Strife is Rooted in Palestinians' 1948 Blunder 
by Stuart Miller. Benny Morris, author of The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem, 1947 to 49, 1948, A History of the First Arab-Israeli War and One State, Two States, was born in Israel, the son of liberal immigrants who raised him in Jerusalem. He fought in the 1967 war and was wounded while later serving near the Suez Canal. In the 1980s, he refused to uh, serve in the reserves again against the First Intifada because he disagreed with Israel's policies. Morris, 74, spoke by video from his home in Israel about the current war and how it is shaped by the past. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. Question. The history of this land is riven by two incompatible narratives, Israeli and Palestinian. What can we definitely say about what happened in 1948? Answer. At the end of 1947, the United Nations proposed to divide the country into two states. In 1948, there were 1.3 million Arabs in Palestine and 650,000 Jews there. The Jews said yes, but the Arabs of Palestine said no and started shooting. It evolved into a full-scale Arab-Israeli war. Israel eventually won, and 700,000 Arabs were uprooted from their homes, most ending up as refugees in the West Bank and in Gaza. Some accounts put the number at 750,000. Both sides did awful things, which is what happens in war. The Arabs were the losing side, and my view is that if people commit major mistakes in history, they pay for them, and perhaps that's how it should work out. The Palestinians should have agreed to a two-state solution. Question. Do Israelis and Palestinians see the current war in that context? Answer. The Palestinians remember 1948 as a vast tragedy. The Nakba, their memory, is filled with that uh, with that, but they're not told or don't care that they, that they started the war. What they remember is that they're refugees. I can certainly understand these descendants of refugees looking across the border and seeing these green fields and Israelis living in prosperity by comparison and feeling resented and hate, resentment and hatred. The hatred essentially comes from the history of refugeedom and Israeli occupation. But also when the Israeli government withdrew from the Gaza Strip in 2005, it ended up being administered by Hamas, this extremist, fanatical Islamist organization which inoculates in its children hatred of Jews and Israel and the idea that everything must be solved by the sword. So the hatred also comes from an education system which brought up everybody believing that Jews must die and Israel must die. And one of the results of this is what happened on October 7. Question. Do Israelis also see this in the, con- the context of 1948? Answer. The history is in the minds of everybody here in this region. But Jews also think, of course, of the Holocaust, which preceded 1948. When they engaged the Arabs in 1948, the Jews thought the Arabs were out there to commit a second Holocaust. Question. Benjamin Netanyahu recently talked about this as a second war for independence, which some call code for Israel getting ready to commit a second Nakba and expel the Palestinians again? Answer. That's nonsense. It's not code for anything. I'm not a supporter of Netanyahu. He's a hateful, corrupt leader. leader. But this thought about going back to 1948 really goes to the basics. The Zionist view is that the Arabs want to destroy the Jewish state. It's not just the Gaza Strip. There's constant shooting by the Lebanese, Hezbollah, and now the Houthis in Yemen are firing rockets into Israel 
and seized an Israel-linked ship. We're surrounded by states and groups basically run by the Iranians, who are behind much of this. I'm not saying that Gaza Arabs don't have their own native uh, antagonism, but they're also acting as agents, as the Hezbollah are, of Iran, which wants to destroy Israel. Question. The new historians look to break free from old ideas about the events of 1948. What misconceptions are there today? Answer. In Israel, there's a certain blindness. The television is constantly streaming what's happening in Gaza, and nobody says this actually does in some way derive from the tragedy of the Palestinians in 1948 and onward. They don't talk about 48 or the occupation, which certainly reinforced anger and hatred of Jews. None of this explains the savagery of what happened, but it's in the background, and here it's sort of ignored. Question. You obviously have strong opinions. With this violent and tangled history and the current war, can any journalist or historian ever be close to uh, objective? Answer. You'll find very few Arab historians who are objective about their plight. They stick to their political narrative. Israelis can be a little more objective. Many Israelis understand that the Palestinians have a case in the sense that, they're, that they've lived here for centuries and deserve a self-determination. The Jews are freer to express their views because they don't live in a dictatorship. And Zionism so far has been successful while the Palestinian national struggle has been unsuccessful. So Palestinians feel that they can't give ammunition to the enemy by speaking out against their own mistakes and crimes. There's an asymmetry between the two sides. Question. How did October 7 change Israel's sense of its invincibility? Answer. Israelis felt almost completely invulnerable and certainly not vulnerable to a small terrorist army. There was hubris and contempt for Arabs in general, and this led people to misread the signs. The army was caught totally with its pants down. This caused a tremendous sense of shock. When you have women raped and civilians taken hostage, it hardens Israeli hearts towards Palestinians. But it might also reopen the whole Palestinian question. For decades, Israel basically said, we can live with this small amount of terrorism and occasional shooting matches, but now the Palestinian problem is back on the international agenda, and that's certainly a result of this attack by Hamas. Question. Is there a possible solution? Answer. Unfortunately, I'm a pessimist. A one-state solution with Jews and Arabs living nicely together, running the place jointly is total nonsense. The two-state solution is what I favor, and I think many Israelis and people in Western governments favored. My fear is that Palestinians still don't want a two-state solution and believe Palestine is theirs and that the Jews came here illegally. And the right has basically taken over in Israel since 1977 and they also reject the two-state solution, feeling all of Palestine should be for the Jews and that Arabs are the interloopers and are all terrorists. Many Jews would accept it, but they don't control the government. We have an extreme right-wing government, so there'll be more of the same. Israel, I hope, will destroy Hamas, but that doesn't mean that's the end of the story. There's two million Arabs living in poverty and misery in the Gaza Strip, and eventually the resistance or terrorism will rear up again. And that was Benny Morris, Strife is Rooted in Palestinians' 1948 Blunder by Stuart Miller. Here's the second part under that uh, context. It says, Avi Shalem, Israel doesn't want peaceful coexistence, also by Stuart Miller. Avi Shlame, author of Collusion Across the Jordan, War and Peace in the Middle East, 
and the Iron Wall was born in Baghdad but fled with his family to Israel from persecution that surged after 1948. As an adult, he moved to England where he has lived and taught for more than half a century. Shalem78 spoke by video from his home in England about the current war and how he believes it is shaped by the past. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. Question. The history of this land is riven by two compatible narratives, Israeli and Palestinian. What can we definitively say about what happened in 1948? Answer. After winning the war in, after the war in 1948, the two winners were Israel, which expanded its territory beyond the borders of the UN part partition plan, and King Abdullah of Jordan, whose army captured the West Bank, what was to be the heartland of the Palestinian state under their parti partition plan. Israel would capture it in 1967. The losers were the three-quarters of a million Palestinians, more than half the population, who became refugees during the Nakba. These are the true roots of the current conflict. Noam Chomsky once said that settler colonialism is the most extreme and vicious form of imperialism. Palestinians have had the misfortune to be at the receiving end of both Zionist settler colonialism and Western imperialism, first British and then American. The aim of the Zionist movement from the beginning was to have a Jewish state over as large an area as possible with as few Arabs inside its borders as possible. Question. Do Israelis and Palestinians see the current war in that context? Answer. Benjamin Netanyahu said we are fighting our second war of independence. No one is challenging Israel's independence or existence today. Why call it a second war of independence? I think the reason is a sinister one. The first war of independence was accompanied by the Nakba, the catastrophe, and now there are signs in leaked documents that the Israeli government is planning for a second mass expulsion from Gaza. History tells us that when Israel carries out ethnic cleansing as it did in 1948, it won't allow the Arabs to come back. And I think America is largely responsible for where we are now because of its blind support for Israel, which continues despite Israeli atrocities in Gaza. Question. But Hamas has talked about creating a permanent state of war. Doesn't that challenge Israel's independence of co or coexistence? Answer. People forget that in 2006, Hamas won a fair and free election, not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank as well. They formed a government, but Israel refused to recognize it, and so did the United States and the United Kingdom and European Union. Israel engaged in economic warfare to undermine the Hamas government and Israel's European and American allies, to uh, their eternal shame, joined Israel. This is one of many examples of the utter hypocrisy of the Western powers. They say they believe in democracy, and here was a shining example of Arab democracy in action, but the Western allies refused to recognize the result because the Palestinian people had chosen the wrong bunch of people. Question. The new historians look to break free from old ideas about the events of 1948. What misconceptions are there today? Answer. The main misconception is that Hamas is the obstacle to peace. It has a terrible charter, and it had an extremist program. But after it came to power, it moderated its program and offered and offered Israel a long-term ceasefire as part of a larger negotiations over territory and other issues in 2006 and again in 2015. But Israel rejected it. So that's one misconception, that Israel wants peace and Hamas was stopping it. 
Israel is the obstacle to peace. Another misconception is that Israel wanted a two-state solution. This is complete rubbish. It's now fashionable to say the two-state solution is dead because of things like Israeli settlements in the West Bank. But I say the two-state solution was never born because no Israeli government since 1967 has offered a two-state solution that would be acceptable even to the most moderate Palestinian leader. And no American government has ever really pushed Israel into a two-state solution. Question. You obviously have strong opinions. With this violent entangled history and the current war, can any journalist or historian ever be close to objective? Answer. It's very difficult to be objective because it's such an emotional, emotive issue. Uh, and emotions are running very high on both sides now. But scholars can look at this conflict more or less objectively. Rashid Khalidi, a professor at Columbia, is the leading Palestinian historian of the conflict, and we don't differ that much fundamentally. We both see the essence of the conflict as being the Zionist settler colonial movement. Question. Your book, The Iron Wall, focused on Israel's insistence on being unassailable. How does the Hamas attack change that perception within Israel? Answer. Israel came to think of itself as invincible, and Netanyahu thought, we can do whatever we like on the West Bank. We can manage the situation in Gaza, and we can make peace with the Arab states without having to make any concessions to pal the Palestinians. But on the 7th of October, the whole, policy, the whole of this policy collapsed overnight. And the whole Israeli society has been unhinged by the experience. It was a truly traumatic experience, and now Israelis can't think straight. They want the government to dismantle Hamas once and for all. But you can't eradicate Hamas. Hamas is not a military organization. It's a social movement, part of the fabric of Palestinian society. Question. Is there any good solution you can see? Answer. I wish I could see a light at the end of the tunnel, but I'm utterly pessimistic. That was... Avi Shalem, Israel Does Not Want Peaceful Coexistence by Stuart Miller. And both of those articles are under the title of Old Divide Splits, Splits Two of Israel's New Historians from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 27, 2023. Now here is one more uh, book article. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 28, 2023. Reads on Israeli-Palestinian strife. Leading writers recommend 14 books to help you understand the deep roots of the war in Gaza. By Boris Kashka. Decades before the latest eruption of war in Israel and Gaza that began with Hamas's October 7 massacre, and well before internet algorithms amplified misinformation, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was already a source of confusion, competing claims, Rashomon, like narrative clashes. Even basic facts seem to defy confirmation of debunking. Nonetheless, we are obligated to try to understand, and books are the best place to start. To build a preliminary reading list in hopes of covering as much territory as possible without sacrificing factual rigor or overwhelming even the intrepid reader, we asked authors, scholars, historians, uh, mem memoirists, and novelists to each pick two or three books they would insist are essential to understanding the complexities and the human toll of the conflict. Several of our polled writers wound up on the short list, sometimes recommended by historians with whom they have fundamental disagreements. This in it itself is heartening, but it's not to say that what follows is anything like a comprehensive or even representative list.
It's simply a set of starting points. Whether you're interested in memoirs or academic surveys, the seeds of the Israeli state or the ancient history of the Gaza Strip. Consider it an open invitation to learn more. Contributors Tariq Bakuni, Khalid El-Gindi, uh, Gershon Gorenberg, Isabella Hamad, Adina Hoffman, Rashid Khalidi, Anthony Lowenstein, Benny Morris, Avi Raz, Avi Shalem, Nathan Throng. O Jerusalem by Dominic Lapierre and Larry Collins. A meticulously detailed oral history of the founding of Israel, day by day, minute by minute, constituting a portrait of heroism and struggle on all sides, as kaleidoscope as war and peace, only true. Gershon Gorenberg, author of The Ancient Empire and Other Critical Histories of Israel, considers it essential, even if after all these years, necessarily incomplete. Still the best popular history, keep in mind that much uh, source material has been revealed since it was written. 1948, A History of the First Arab-Israeli War by Benny Morris. The historian in me takes a long view of the conflict, says Gorenberg, and 1948, the war that began all Arab-Israeli wars, is a logical starting point. The moment Israel was created, followed by war and the mass evacuation that Palestinians refer to as the Nakba, Benny Morris, 1940, Benny Morris's 1948, it's the most comprehensive history, Gorenberg says. Morris, once controversial for his rev revisionist criticism of Israel, is now considered mainstream or even right-wing, but his books are deemed to be foundational. In the context of the current war, Avi Raz, author of The Bride and the Dowry and other important books, also recommends Morris's The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem. A Tale of Love and Darkness by Amos Oz Morris, for his part, calls this magisterial memoir by the late Israeli novelist brilliant, if overlong, but its length is merited by the scope of Oz's project. An early history of Israel nested inside a painful family story. Opening on the monument when the United Nations approved the Israeli state when he was eight, Oz moves through his bookish left Zionist upbringing among the immigrants from Eastern Europe and covers the lasting scars of his mother's suicide, as well as the cultural legacy of the Holocaust. Natalie Portman directed and starred in a 2015 film adaptation, a very personal memoir of growing up before, during, and after 1948, adds Gorenberg. Arabesque by Anton Shamas, translated by Vivian Eden. Another of Morris's suggestions is this brilliant novel, written in Hebrew by an Israeli Christian Arab which renders a fictional version of a story set in the same space and across the same span of time as Oz's, but from a Palestinian point of view. Beginning as a rural family story, it also opens out autobiographically when writer, the writer-protagonist ventures out to Europe and then the U.S. and begins doubting the narratives he has both read and written. Gaza, a History by Jean-Pierre Filiou Scholar and author Tariq Bakoni recommends this excellent book on the history of Gaza, in part because it goes back far beyond the conflict that's shaped it over the last century. Ancient Egyptians sparred over this territory on the margins of many empires, as did Persians, Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, Ottomans, and others. Understanding its past as a perennial borderland is essential 
to knowing how it became the crucible of one of the most bitter disputes in modern history. The Gates of Gaza, Israel's Road to Suez and Back, 1955-57, by Mordecai Bar-On. Morris recommends this history that describes the origins of the 1956 Israel-Egypt War, focusing on the uh, Gaza Strip and its majority Palestinian refugee population, anti-Israeli terrorism, and Israeli retaliation 65 years ago. In other words, this is a close account of the conflict that laid the foundation for Gaza as a perennial flashpoint, a refugee bargaining chip, and a battlefield. Footnotes in Gaza by Joe Sacco Sacco's illustrated repertorial deep dive felt like a breakthrough, not just for journalism, but also for the graphic novel, proving that one, that, that what we once called comics can be a conduit for the darkest and most serious material. Nathan Thrall, author of the recent book A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, calls it a powerful and brilliant work of rep reportage that uncovers, in the form of a graphic novel, an Israeli massacre in Gaza in 1956, at the same time depicting in Sacco's in inimitable style the present-day lives of the people of Rafa and Khan Yonis. The Bride and the Dowry by Avi Raz The Israeli-born Oxford scholar's influential history frames Israel's expansion beyond internationally recognized borders as a, bar a bargain made without sufficient forethought, leading to the cycle of stalemate, conflict, and oppression that persists to this day. A penetrating work of history, says Thrall, that explains the central dilemma of Israeli leaders after conquering Gaza and the West Bank in 1967. They liked the dowry and at first were especially keen on annexing Ta uh, Gaza, but not the bride, the Palestinian population which they hoped to relocate outside Gaza in order to annex the territory. The Hundred Years' War on Palestine by Rashid Khalidi This is a brave, brilliant, magistral, and highly important book Avi Shalem author of The Iron Wall and other works of history, notes in an endorsement of the book. It is not merely a work of outstanding historical scholarship, but of high drama and fascinating narrative. Khalidi places the policies of Palestinian, Zionist, and American leaders under an uncompromising lens. From his powerful survey of the past, he draws lessons for, uh, of the, for the present and maps out a different, more hopeful trajectory. Isabella Hamad, author of The Parisian and other novels, calls it accessible and lucid, meticulous and indispensable. After the Last Sky by Edward W. Said The late Palestinian Christian-born scholar of anti-colonialism wrote several influential volumes on conflicts around the world, including a memoir, Out of Place. Hamad particularly recommends this 1986 book, a long essay accompanied by, and resounding to, a series of photographs of Palestinians by the Swiss photographer Jean Moore. The, this book explores the multifariousness of Palestinian experiences with tenderness and insight. Adina Hoffman, author of Till We Have Built Jerusalem, Architects of a New City, calls this site's least outwardly polemic, pol polemical work. Though it's among its most persuasive and moving, searching essays about what might be called the varieties of Palestinian experience. The Gaza Strip, The Political Economy of De-Development by Sarah Roy 
The Gaza Strip is not backward and impoverished because its residents are lazy, but because Israel's regime did not give it a chance to flourish, says Shalane. Between 1967 and 2005, a classical colonial situation prevailed. Roy, a Jewish scholar at Harvard, the daughter of Holocaust survivors, is a leading expert on the Gaza Strip. She has written four books on Gaza. This first groundbreaking book shows in detail the various measures by which Israel systematically thwarted the growth of industry in the Gaza Strip and exploited the enclave as a source of cheap labor and a market for its own goods until its unilateral disengagement in 2005. Hamas Contained by Tariq Bakoni Khalidi recommends Bakoni's inside account of what Hamas, which tracks its journey from a fringe group to a governing body of a sort, only to conclude that its dedication to violence would forever hobble Palestinian goals. The October 7 massacre undermines his narrative of moder- moderation, but its consequences confirm his conclusion. Khalid El-Gindi, an author and senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, says, despite certain aspects somewhat being overtaken by events, it remains the most authoritative and incitive volume out there on the, interna- on the internal dynamics, paradoxes, and other forces that animate Hamas's decision-making and relationships without, without, with other Palestine political actors. A Rebel in Gaza Behind the Lines of the Arab Spring, One Woman's Story, by Asma Gul and Salim Nasib, translated by Mike Mitchell. Roz recommends this memoir of Gul's coming of age as a secular journalist and activist. Opposed to both Hamas and Fatah, she was subject to beatings and imprisonment, but it was during Israel's 2014 bombardment of Gaza that Gul told her story to Nasib via meetings phone calls, Skypes, and text messages. The sense of place comes through, as does the feeling of what it's like to feel the bombs rain down, contending with mortal enemies both within and outside the borders of the Strip. So What? New and Selected Poems, 1971-2005, to by Taha Muhammad Ali, translated by Peter Koh, Yahya Hejazi, and Gabriel Levin. The late Palestinian poet's new and collected work, Hoffman says, beams through the current darkness. After we die, and the weary heart has lowered its final eyelid on all that we've done, and on all that we've longed for, on all that we've dreamt of, all we've desired or felt, hate will be the first thing to putrefy within us. That was Reads on Israeli-Palestinian Strife by Boris Kachka from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 28, 2023. All right, let's conclude with another article or two from Beyahad together from the Jewish National Fund, Your Voice for Israel. And we go to the Together section, Women for Israel. And this is called Women for Israel Celebrate Extraordinary Growth, the Billion Dollar Roadmap Journey, Author Unknown. As a vibrant and continuously growing network of strong women who love Israel, our Women for Israel campaign keeps moving forward. With chapters across the nation, and more members stepping up into leadership positions, we can't wait to see what the next decade will have in store. Women for Israel is creating a bright future for Israelis of all backgrounds and providing exciting opportunities for American women who are passionate about Israel's future. We are creating a lasting legacy for generations to come. 
We connect women through engagement, fundraising, educational, and cultural events. Attend an event, learn something new, be inspired by the land and people of Israel, by our work in Zionist education and engagement, and by other women in your community. Tracy Kaplan, Northern New Jersey WFI, and board members shared that Women for Israel is a way of meeting people, both similar and different, who share a love for Israel. I love that I can see what we as women can do and get involved in. Over the past 10 years, we have expanded from two to five giving societies, adding high $1,800, Circle of Sapphire $100,000, and Circle of Sapphire plus $200,000, which include access to high-level briefings with Israeli dignitaries and organizational leaders. Kim Kotzkin, president of Women for Israel, said, Being part of a giving society connects you more to the people and initiatives making a difference in Israel. The fact that we started with one society and now a five is proof that women are involved at the highest levels of Jewish National Fund USA and are proud of their contributions. Women for Israel has expanded to more than 30 regions and is even reaching younger audiences. For Raifa Shams, the co-president of Mid-Atlantic JN Future Board, a VP of Leadership on the JN Future National Board, and National High Society Chair, Women for Israel, it's all about bringing more people into the 21st century of Zionism, saying that our generation wants to feel like we are partners in a shared project, and I get that sense from Jewish National Fund USA. It gives me a lot of pride and joy and individual fulfillment. Experiencing, there is no better way to understand the true impact of our work and your participation than by seeing it firsthand. On the Queen of Sheba, Women's Mission to Israel, you'll see, touch, and taste the difference you're making. Barbara Burry, immediate past president, Women for Israel, said, The impact of traveling together with a group of women is amazing. Sharing in each other's excitement and energy and seeing our work firsthand is truly inspiring. That's Women for Israel Celebrate Extraordinary Growth, the Billion Dollar Roadmap Journey, author unknown, from the Together section, Women for Israel. And also from the Together section, Planned Living section, actually. This is a spiritual legacy in Israel. A community cares carries forward couples' love for Israel by Matt Bernstein, CFP, JNF Chief Planning, give, Planned Giving Officer. I usually write about fi the financial benefits of looking to Jewish National Fund for creative financial planning or income-producing ways to support the land of, and people of Israel. Today, I want to share a true story of how a properly designed charitable gift plan can save income and estate taxes to fulfill your dreams. Shirley and Robert Levitt of Greensboro, North Carolina, established a charitable gift annuity. They were attracted to our competitive annuity rates and wanted to support Israel. We kept in touch through the years, updating them on our work and the importance of their ongoing contributions. Robert passed away and Shirley continued to receive the charitable gift annuity income. About a year later, Shirley called me and said that when she passed, she wanted herself and Robert's legacy to be remembered for making a difference. Around this time, Jewish National Fund was involved in planning a bedroom a community in the Negev Desert near Be'er Sheba. Karmit would attract young families to the Negev with modern and affordable housing. For a long time, Karmit was nothing more than a vision among sand dunes. Shirley saw the potential, though. She believed in its importance and its future. She decided to build a synagogue in this town not yet created to make a statement that Carmen would be built. 
Shirley signed an irrevocable pledge for $2.5 million to build the synagogue. We completed the project, and the Robert and Shirley Levitt Synagogue was dedicated. The effect was dramatic. Within a few months of completion, lots were sold. Families lined up to be part of a dynamic new community. Shirley lived to see the pictures of the completed synagogue and witnessed the dedication virtually. Shimon Perez sent a letter thanking her and Robert for their vision. More powerful, though, is the letter for, from a Carmet resident to Shirley and Robert's family that shared how more than 300 families are now building homes around the synagogue. No organization touches the lives and land of the people of Israel as profoundly as the Jewish National Fund. We should all be proud of our work, commitment, and support. Folks, that's all for now. Shalom and peace.